Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, we sit down with Spencer Jacob, Wall Street Journal columnist and author of the new book, The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors. Spencer walks us through the whole GameStop saga, from the main players in the story to the factors that contributed to GameStop's meteoric rise. Spencer weaves all the pieces together to explain what happened, who benefited, who lost during this historic time in the market. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Spencer Jacob. Spencer, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. There are three writers at the Wall Street Journal whose articles I always try to read when I see them. Jason Zwag, James McIntosh, and yours. So thank you for educating me on the markets uh, all these years. I thought you were going to say Jason Gay for the third and then just leave me hanging there. But thank you very much for including me the three. I'm very flattered. Uh, thank you very much. Um, yeah, no, I've, uh, it's, I've just celebrated my, my 10-year anniversary at the Journal. Uh, so it's, uh, it's been a happy, happy 10 years. Well, and I don't know if a lot of writers take your path with coming from Wall Street to journalism. So you kind of had an interesting, I think, path that got you to the Wall Street Journal. You know, you didn't necessarily go to school to be a writer or a journalist, um, but you know, here you are at the Journal, which is pretty cool. Yeah, no, I well, I would say that um, that the the majority of people in the newsroom either went to journalism school or did an undergraduate degree or. Or the editor of their school paper, or whatever. I, I was. I wrote for my school paper because there was a cute girl I liked who was on the school paper, and I you know, always liked to write and whatever. And then, and then I never thought that I would would do it again because it just wasn't a wasn't a profession that I knew about. Um, but likewise, Wall Street was not a profession that I knew about, and I, I fell into that by accident. You know, I thought I was going to be a like a historian or or something like that, uh, and I was applying to PhD programs. And this is before the internet, of course, so it's, I don't know if it's an easier or harder mistake to make, but I uh, got an application to more of a professional program uh, at, at Columbia University, and um, I wound up getting accepted, and my undergraduate advisor uh, said, oh, you should, you should do that. And this was something where a lot of people who had been out in the working world already went back to, to do and uh, made friends with a, a kid who had been an investment banker. And I also had no idea what that was. I mean, I, I had a vague idea what it was. I think I had maybe just read Liar's Poker. So I, I did know what it was from that. That's the year that it came out. But um, yeah, and, uh, and I, he told me about it. And uh, he, I went right ahead and took all the finance coursework I could at Columbia Business School, which you were allowed to do then, uh, over the next two years, and worked in finance for a decade, and, uh, and then became a journalist after that. Yeah, definitely interesting path. Well, I think the journalism certainly, um, you know, has helped you become the writer you are today. And today we're going to talk about the new book that you have, um, the revolution that wasn't GameStop, Reddit, and the fleecing of small, the small investor. Um, I think what we wanted to do with you is use your book as an outline to talk about during that crazy time in the market, the, the, the players that were involved, what took place with GameStop, what was happening in the market, who benefited, who lost, and then I think we'll sort of conclude with some practical takeaways uh, for investors to think about. But you start the book with a great line and you wrote, I will never forget the day I found that my sons were de degenerates. And you use this as a way to introduce this idea of Wall Street bets and why so many young people were attracted to it. Um, can you just talk about Wall Street bets to start and, and that subreddit and why your sons were so attracted to that? Sure, I've got three boys, um, and the oldest is is twenty three. Uh, the youngest is is fifteen, uh, so they're just subtract a year for where they were at the time that the story takes place, and um, so two of them are are very into Reddit and uh, were, you know, reading things on this forum. And Wall Street bets is something that I, I became aware of, let's say, about a year before the, the the main events take place in the story. Wall Street bets is one, just for those who don't know, it's one of about 100,000 subreddits on Reddit. Reddit is, uh, it calls itself the front page of the internet, and you can get into groups that 
talk about all manner of things. And then all those groups have subgroups and sub splinters. You know, you can, it's not just fishing, there's fly fishing and this fishing and that fishing. And when it comes to investing your own money, there's investing, but then there's also uh, a sort of more bogle-heady group. And then there's Wall Street Bets that was founded in, uh, in 2012, which was more explicitly, as the name suggests, about making bets, about doing hacks, wild, crazy things. And then if you just are on Reddit, then some things will be very popular and be very upvoted. There's a human algorithm there, and they'll make it to the front page of Reddit. And um, at the Wall Street Journal, we'd be sitting around. This is, I'm going back to maybe just months before the pandemic, and you'd see some stock go up. Uh, and we'd be sitting there at Heard on the Street, being like, oh, why, why'd that go up? Do you see any news? Do you see any earnings? Do you see anything? No, they're talking to our Wall Street bets, you know, and that was like, oh, okay. And then we sort of all sort of knew what it, knew what it was. And it was just a joke to us. It was, uh, we just thought it was very funny. No offense to anybody on Wall Street bets, but I mean, the whole idea that a, a bunch of uh, mostly inexperienced um, kind of low information retail investors would all pile into something at the same time. I mean, you can make something go up if you all buy it at the same time, but good luck having at least half of you make money from it, right? I mean, that's it's easy to, to pile into something. And a lot of the things that they were piling into were a company that was bankrupt or a company that sounded like another company that Elon Musk mentioned on uh, on a podcast, and then everybody bought the thing that sounded like that, or a company that somebody would mention a company that wasn't even publicly traded, and then there's a company that's like with like a really similar name, or that had changed its name to be really similar and like in, like a penny stock, and it, you know intentionally made itself sound like that, and then these people kind of were fooled and all bought it, and then someone some poor guys at the end were left holding the bag. So it wasn't something that I took super seriously, and the. The day that I discovered that it was a pretty serious thing and de and decided that I had to write a book about this uh, was January 25th, 2021. It was a few hours before the first articles began to emerge about this GameStop mania. And my oldest boy came over to me and said, Dad, are you going to write about GameStop? And I mean, he's a smart boy, but he's not super interested in what I do at the Wall Street Journal. I was like, well, why would I write about that? I had driven him there a lot, you know, as a kid um, and a teenager. And not so much recently because games are digitized and it was kind of a failing business. It was like Blockbuster three years before Blockbuster went out of business. And yeah, and then he said, oh, because my friend bought it and uh, he's doubled his money in the last couple of days and uh, they're talking about it on Wall Street Bets. And so I started reading Wall Street Bets and 10 minutes of reading, not even 10 minutes of reading, I realized this was something very different because what they were doing was something that we really have not, like in our lifetimes as investors seen. You have to go back to your great grandparents' generation to see what what was going on, which was an attempt at a, a corner. Uh, it just doesn't happen anymore because it, it's just too difficult to do, and 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 a lot of things about it are are illegal. But this was a legal, out in the open, broad daylight attempt at a stock corner, which is when you buy up and don't sell as many shares of a company you can that you know short sellers have targeted. And uh, and then try to drive the price to infinity and and do it, in some cases expressly to hurt them. And so that, I knew that that was incredible. Uh, and uh, I knew that it was going to be a crazy week, and it was it turned out to be much crazier than I thought. It's crazy. It's like you're seeing it right in front of your eyes, through your son's like tip tipping you off to it, and you kind of knew at that point that this is okay. This is going to get, this is going to get unbelievable. Yeah, I I wrote. Um, you know, I, I had a, you know, I was like, you know, this, this, I wrote a book before uh, about all the investors, uh, mistakes that small investors make. And I'd wanted to write a second book for a while. And I had like a couple of kind of three quarters written book proposals sitting on my computer that I wasn't so happy with. And I just trashed those and uh, sent an email basically 10 minutes after my son told me that to the acquisitions editor at Penguin Random House at the portfolio, the imprint that wound up publishing this book and uh thank goodness she she responded and she said oh no i haven't heard about that what you know do you have a proposal I said, no, no no this is i heard about this 10 minutes ago this is happening now this is going to be a big deal and uh and of course it was um and and, and then within two or three days it was a much bigger deal than that i mean it turned into something that politicians were talking about on the left and the right and game, you know, late night talk show hosts were talking about. So it turned into a big cultural phenomenon and a, it turned into a bitter 
issue as well. As we try to understand the story here, I think it would be helpful if we could just talk through some of the main factors that were at play and what was going on in that environment at the time. So let me just kind of list some of the things that um, stood out to us. And then maybe if you could kind of comment on these, um, I think that would be great. So you had, you know, sort of a mistrust of young people of Wall Street. You had commissions go to zero, uh, mostly driven by um, you know, initially by Robinhood, then all the other brokers followed. We obviously had the pandemic and people were home. They couldn't bet on sports. Um, and so, you know, maybe some gamblers or, you know, traders kind of were c- coming into the market and, and that. And then you had sort of the incentives of places like Robinhood, both from like what they were doing within the app, but then also sort of th- this issue with payment for order flow and, and, um, the rise of sort of option traders as well. So can you just, I know that's a, there's a lot of moving pieces, there's a lot of different parties there, but kind of talk to each one of those and kind of help us understand what was going on. <clears throat> and that's one reason this is so interesting is if you trace the origins of it, the the, the stars really did line up to create the, the ground for this to happen. I mean, it, it couldn't have happened in 2015. It, you know, it, it, you had the pandemic. So let's let's go through the factors. So uh, in 2018, there was a big Supreme Court decision that uh, made sports betting uh, legal in most states. And you already had a very large population of young men who were into daily fantasy sports through their phones, so like DraftKings and things like that. And and so they migrated very quickly into actual what's legally considered gambling on sporting events on their phones uh, through these colorful, intuitive apps. And, and so there was a real kind of speculative mania. I mean, my... Um, I have two sons in in their twenties and one who's still a teenager. These kids in their their twenties, I would say, sixty percent of their cohort is is into it. I mean, it's it's not a, a small number, and any group of people that that get into uh, gambling that spend a lot of time in a casino, three to four percent will will develop an addiction. I mean, it's it's just like with alcohol or anything else that that's addictive. You know, there there's some people who are going to really overdo it, um, who really are going to be unable to pull themselves away from it. And then you, know, you have the 1-800-GAMBLER and the, all the commercials and stuff like that. And I guess it, that helps people, but it's, it, it, it is an issue, uh, just like substance abuse. Um, then you had, uh, of course, the pandemic happen, uh, which sent all these young people home. And Wall Street Bets, the group that was the epicenter of this, there was a survey done of their membership, a kind of a not a scientific survey, but basically one of their members did a survey of their membership. And it was overwhelmingly male, overwhelmingly uh, between the ages of, let's say, teens to 35. So 92 percent in that age group and and 96 percent male. Uh, So these are young men, the same people. If you drew a Venn diagram of who was into sports betting and who was into uh, began trading stocks, there would be a significant o- overlap there. But of course, sports went away and these people were bored and they spent a lot of time, a lot more time even than usual, looking at their smartphones. And they were looking for a fun social outlet. Then you had um, the, basically the, their savings rate went up. The savings rate, just generally of Americans, went from uh, just a fairly typically low level in the single digits, below 5%, to uh, an extremely high level for a short amount of time because people literally had nothing to sp- spend money on. You were not going shopping. You were not going to restaurants. You didn't have leisure activities. And for this young generation in particular that tends to spend money as soon as it makes it, they they felt very flush, with, especially, especially with stimulus checks. Uh, and then you had uh, a very, very volatile time in the stock market. That's one thing that you, you didn't mention before, but that I think that plays a role in it as well, which is that you had a, a record rapid descent from an all-time high to a bear market. Never had you had that before. And then you had a record recovery from a bear market by an order of magnitude faster than any recovery ever in the history of, of U.S. stock markets, where you by August you were technically in a, in a new bull market. And you know, usually it takes more than a year or a couple of years to, you know, to surpass the, the previous high and then, and then be in a new bull market. And also, you had an unprecedented uh, kind of hit rate in the stock market. So 96% of stocks uh, that you purchased in the start, I'd say starting at the bottom of the, the, that bear market in, in March 2020 would rise over the next year. So you, you could not go wrong almost. 
And the stocks specifically that did the best were those that didn't make a profit, uh, were those that uh, people were very skeptical about, where there was a high level of short interest. So all the things that serious guys in suits were on TV saying, no, 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 don't buy that. That's that's if you're going to buy anything, don't buy that. That those are the ones that did the best. So the the already low level of respect that this generation had for kind of you know serious guys in suits went even lower. And they didn't like Wall Street. That's one more element, is that they, this is a generation that uh, was new to investing, did not previously think that that finance or investing was cool, and suddenly did, but they didn't think Wall Street was cool. So they, they, they didn't hate all rich people, but they, they had particular disdain for Wall Street because they, maybe their parents had lost their home or had financial difficulties, or one of their parents or both had lost their jobs during the financial crisis. And that was a, a formative financial experience for them. And so the idea of doing something to hurt Wall Street was really appealing. And then who, who are you going to hurt on Wall Street? Short sellers. Uh, I invite you to right now to go over to Google and type into uh, to Google short sellers are and see what comes up. It's not going to be a nice word. And so th there's already a sort of a general disdain in society for people who bet that stocks will, will fall. And then this group, they they conflated betting that stocks will decline with betting with trying to make a company go bankrupt. And when that company happens to be something like GameStop, which is part of young men's childhood and teen years, uh, then it then it kind of takes on a personal tone. Uh, they're trying to make this company fail, um, which which is not the same thing, right? You're not make trying to make a company fail. You might be hoping it'll fail, but you're not trying to make it fail by betting against its stock. So everything came together in a perfect storm that laid the groundwork for this this crazy period of ten or eleven days in January 2021. You talk a lot about how the the users on Wall Street bets were more of the gambling type. Were there also fundamental investors in there? Were there sophisticated investors? Can you talk a little bit about the type of people that were on there? I do suspect that they were. there were uh, two types of sophisticated investors in there. So first of all, you had traditional value investors who were in GameStop at the beginning of, of this. So you had Michael Burry, uh, you know, best known for Michael Lewis as The Big Short and then played by Christian Bale in the movie. And uh, he's a very successful deep value investor. Uh, and he he was early to this, not as early as the hero of our story, uh, Roaring Kitty, but but almost as early, and he uh, he took a stake. Uh, there were other value investors, people with hedge funds and investment funds. Joel Tillinghast, the value investor, was the largest. You know, through his funds at Fidelity, was the largest shareholder. So it's not like there weren't people who believed that GameStop was poorly valued or wasn't going to go away or had a chance or the market was just wrong about it. And then as the thing was going on. Uh, this is a little bit harder to prove. I know a few cases where I can I point to names and names of funds, but I think there were a lot more. There are people who just saw this as for what it was, which was just a, a rocket ship to the moon that basically there was a short squeeze that was going to go on and they were going to ride it for uh, 50 or 100 percent. And and I think a lot of uh, a lot of the profits that were made were made by people who were uh, smart enough to hop on, but cynical enough to also hop off. And I think that there were a lot of people who, among the individual investors, clearly, who got out. You know, if you look at the stats, this wasn't known until after the events, but if you look at the stats on what individual investors did during this period, a lot got out. As as the bubble inflated, a lot jumped ship. There were, there were more sellers uh, than buyers in that group. You mentioned uh, Keith Gill or Roaring Kitty or a name that I won't mention since my dad listens to this podcast. Um, but can you can you talk a little bit about him? I mean, he doesn't seem like the perfect fit for Wall Street bets. I mean, he he had like you no. said, he had a fundamental case for what he was doing. Can you talk a yeah. little bit about him and sort of how he got involved with GameStop? Well, he is a fascinating character, and so I, I really uh, I trace the story through through him, and and I go back to you know when he sort of first discovered the stock, and. People go back and, and read those posts, and those posts are still can, can be seen there on Wall Street Bets. But what you have to understand is that at the time he was either ignored or ridiculed. He got very little take up on his argument that this is a good stock. He wrote in complete sentences. He made a very cerebral argument. Uh, he would double his money. He he, he went went and made this all or nothing bet basically by buying out of the money long dated call options on on. Uh, on GameStop, which are instruments that will expire worthless uh, if you're wrong. 
and will have a huge payoff if you're right. Uh, but a, the most speculative type instrument that you can you can purchase to to bet on an individual stock, maybe short of a stock future, I guess. Um, but as this thing heated up, and as talk of a short squeeze heated up, and other characters came in, like Ryan Cohen, the founder of Chewy.com, showed up on the scene, and and others, then people discovered that this guy had been very early to GameStop. And he, I think, um, and I'm interpreting this here because I, I did speak with many people on background, but I will tell you that I, uh, you know, did not speak with, with him. He has been interviewed one time, one time only by the Wall Street Journal, by my colleagues at the Journal, and that's it. But uh, I get the sense that he got spooked because he was a financial advisor. He was a sophisticated guy. He has a CFA. Nobody knew that at the time. But um, he went from making explicit arguments to buy the stock to, I think there's going to be a short squeeze, and then just posting memes, and then just finally just posting uh, pictures of his uh, E-Trade account with his name obviously not shown. And, and that was the most effective thing possible. That's what is so interesting about human psychology is these cerebral arguments as to why you should buy the stock were ignored. But then this sort of, here, look how much money I have uh, and how much of a gain I have on this gigantic all or nothing bet I made on the stock. And that was hugely influential. And then every day he would begin, he went from posting it every once in a while at once a month to once a week to once a day. And people saw that he was hanging on. And that was a, a, a tremendous inspiration to this group. So you'd have millions of people literally checking in every day to see if he had sold or not. And the mantra there for a while was, if he's still in, I'm still in. Can you just talk? I want to talk a little bit about the the entry into this with GameStop and why this was the perfect candidate. Um, can you just talk about like what what the short interest was in GameStop coming into this? Who sort of the players were on the short side and why this was a perfect candidate for this whole plan? So, 2020 was a very difficult year for short sellers. Uh, it was possibly the worst year ever in terms of total losses, uh, according to some estimates. So, short sellers have been kind of kicked to the curb already, uh, and the level of uh, net short interest in the stock market was about as low as it has ever been, uh, as as long as those records have been kept. About as low as it was at the peak of the of the tech bubble. Uh, so it was not a good time for short sellers. And the most obvious candidates for selling short were the ones that gave them the most pain. I mean, kind of the hydrogen garbage truck startup that clearly was sort of there was something fishy going on. Nikola and you know and and whatever you know the they they were. Uh, getting beaten up on things that were clearly overvalued and clearly speculative. And so this was an area where they felt safe because think about the stocks. It wasn't just GameStop. It was a collection of stocks that collectively became known as the meme stocks. And they all had something in common, which is that they all were economically challenged and none of them were glamorous. You had GameStop, which, you know, 10 or 15 years ago had been really successful and was just being digitized out of existence. You had uh, AMC theaters, which even before the pandemic, uh, streaming was was sort of putting uh, the the squeeze on movie theater chains, and they were heavily indebted. They estimates were that they had maybe six months left as a company uh, before they would run out of cash. Uh, there was Bed Bath and Beyond, which was being Amazoned out of existence. There was BlackBerry, which was iPhoned out of existence. There was Nokia, which also was well, Nokia was BlackBerry out of existence, and then and then iPhoned out of existence. So, you had these companies that really were were very uh, kind of obvious candidates. But the problem was that people, th th there are funds out there that are not just fully in the business of short selling, but they always are looking for short selling candidates as part of their strategy. It's a way to get leverage. It's a way to smooth your returns. So one of the funds out there was Melvin Capital, which was one of the most successful hedge funds on Wall Street up until this this time. Uh, its, uh, its manager personally took home $846 million in 2020. Uh, he was a real golden boy of, of Wall Street, Gabe Plotkin. And this was a natural thing for him to bet against GameStop because if you sell a stock short, then without owning it, you've sold it, you've raised cash, and you can use that cash as uh, as basically as free borrowing to purchase some other stocks. So you can sell stock A short, that's in a certain business, and then buy stock B with the proceeds, and then even borrow more money to buy stock B. And then if you're right about stock B going up and stock B 
goes up more than stock A or stock A goes down, then you've increased your returns. And if the entire market goes down, then it smooths out your returns because stock A is a quality stock and stock B is a low quality stock. And so you've cushioned the downside. And that that's the that's the basically the way that a, a lot of hedge funds on Wall Street work. Um, you never imagine, I mean, you do imagine that maybe somebody will come out and think that GameStop is a good stock and you'll buy it for 50% more than it's trading for, then you'll have a very bad month, right? If if that happens. But then it'll go from $4 to $6. It doesn't go from $4 to $483, which is what happened during this week. That's just something that's beyond comprehension. And so they felt so safe selling it short that the position became really crowded. At one point, 140% of the available shares of the float was sold short in GameStop, which is just very excessive. It's very dangerous. And the analogy that I would make is it's like, you know, you never want to be in a crowded theater with one little exit uh, in case somebody smells smoke. But here there's a very crowded theater. Someone was sitting in everybody's lap, basically, in this theater. You had more people than it was designed for. And then you had some people who were arsonists who not only uh, dropped a cigarette on the carpet, but then they poured gasoline on the carpet and then they threw dynamite into the theater, and then they threw nitroglycerin on top of the dynamite into the theater uh, so that everyone would rush for the exits. And that that's kind of what happened. It was a very deliberately engineered exercise, something that, by the way, is illegal to do these days if you're, uh, you're an investment fund. You can't do that anymore. It used to happen during the, the bad old days before there was an SEC. But there's no rule against doing it out in the open on a message board that these guys just ignore. And so that's kind of what happened. You mentioned on the long side how options were the vehicle of choice here. And, you know, this is something I've had to educate myself a lot about recently because option dealers play such a huge role in the market and what they do in response to people buying options. So I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about options, why they were chosen here, and sort of the impact that had on the whole story. Sure. So clearly there were some sophisticated people on this board. And Wall Street Bets, um, at the time that my my book begins, had uh, just over one million members, um, which is a lot. Uh, but it, that made it, I mean, a lot of people are members of lots of different subreddits on Reddit. So it was maybe the 70th or 80th most, uh, most belonged to subreddit, not off the charts. It rose to about 2 million at the beginning of the sort of the real main show. And then it, uh, it, today it's about 11 million. It, it quadrupled in the, in the span of a few weeks during this time. And in the run-up to this episode, clearly some people were on there who were pretty sophisticated. And they said, hey, you guys, I see you want to put a short squeeze on this. Here's how to do it. Here's how to get the maximum bang for the buck. And what they pointed out was that instead of buying the stock and, and then holding it, having diamond hands, which means not selling, not having paper hands, but holding on, not selling no matter what, so that there is not stock available to repurchase by the short sellers when the squeeze happens, what they said is like, you should buy uh, short dated out of the money options. And an option is basically a contract to buy or sell a call or a put some uh, instrument at a future date at a certain price. If you buy a call option on a stock that is out of the money, so the if it you, were, you exercise it today, you wouldn't get anything because the price is above where it trades today, but you're just hoping it'll get there. And you buy one that doesn't have much time left to expire then you only have to pay pennies for it because the odds of you making any money off of it are tiny. And so you're like, it, you know, it's like insuring against a meteorite hitting your house. You could buy insurance for that maybe, but what it's not probably not going to happen. Right. And, and so that you're, you're buying insurance into a low probability event or the analogy that I use in the book is, is an earthquake, but this is a different kind of insurance because as the earth begins to rumble, as there are some, there's some seismic activity, the insurer can say, uh-oh, okay, there might actually be an earthquake. This guy might be right. Let's buy reinsurance in the market. Let's insure ourselves against this happening. And that's what options dealers do. So they'll sell you this contract, but they're not just going to leave it there because they're taking infinite risk. If you, let's say a stock is at, at $10 and you buy a, a, an options contract allowing you for to buy it next month at $15, it's probably not going to go to $15. But what if it does? What if it starts to rise? What if people start buying it? What if something strange is happening in the market? Then the options dealer is at risk because what if it goes to $100? Then the options dealer is going to be bankrupt because they sold you this thing for two cents and they have to you know, 
basically give you something worth $85, right? So you can make such a huge multiple of what you paid them that the the premium, the insurance premium basically that you paid them is is it doesn't come close to covering it. So they don't just sit on their hands, they start to buy the stock and there's a formula that dictates how how much of the stock they have to buy. And it's called delta. So basically for every dollar rise in a stock, how much of the stock do they have to to purchase in order to hedge themselves. They don't want to take any risk. They just want to facilitate the transaction and scalp a little bit of, of premium off of you. So they don't care which way the stock is going. They're going to buy it because they sold the, the option. And uh, there's a, a Greek letter that denotes the acceleration, the accelerating rate at which they have to purchase those stocks. It's called alpha. So the delta is how much they have to buy per dollar, and the alpha is how much that delta goes up as the as you get closer in time and price and that is called an alpha squeeze because when a lot of people are short a stock you can induce something called an alpha squeeze um or sorry a gamma squeeze not a alpha squeeze a gamma squeeze i'm getting my greek letters mixed up a gamma squeeze delta and gamma and uh, a gamma squeeze uh people have tried to do it before it's not like people don't know about it uh as a matter of fact a very very deep-pocketed investor uh, enacted a, a gamma squeeze during the summer of 2020, Masayoshi Sun. He owned a bunch of under uh, stocks and, under, and tech companies, and then he bought options in them simultaneously. Nobody knew who he was. People didn't make the connection until months after he had started to do it. Uh, but he, he succeeded in driving the share prices of these big tech companies up a lot. Now, if he could do it for those big widely traded tech companies, then how hard would, would it be to, for a company like GameStop that's a small company that's not traded a lot? Well, not that hard at all, it turns out. And there was a wave of options buying in GameStop and the other meme, meme stocks in order to to drive them to the moon. Uh, and it was, in terms of bang for the buck, it was a much more effective technique than um, than purchasing the stock itself. And And Remember, these are people with not a lot of money. It's it's lots of people, but all with small accounts. And so, yeah, and, and then a lot of the people who bought the options actually did quite well for themselves financially because they paid pennies and they actually sold the options or the options expired in the money and they made multiples of, of their bet. But lots of people just saw their premium go away. And attempts at a gamma squeeze have continued since this, by the way. And so that that's the thing that's most surprising to me is that since I you know, got the contract to write this book and sat down and spent every evening and weekend and vacation writing the book, and I thought I'd be writing about something of kind of an amazing episode of historical interest, it has continued. And people have attempted it again and again. But it's hard to do it a second time. And it's really hard to do it a fifth time. And that, that's kind of what they've attempted to do. Just to give listeners an idea of how powerful these forces are, I mean, I think GameStop was something in 2020 at the bottom of the bear market it was something like two dollars. Is that right? And then just talk about how high it got during this this you know during this January 2021 period. Yeah, it went from a low of two dollars and seventeen cents uh, at the bottom of that bear market to as high intraday as four hundred and eighty three dollars on um, on the 28th of January 2021. So big big jump. What amazes me is, uh, you know, I, I was just in, in researching this. You know, I was just I hadn't looked at GameStop in forever, um, and I figured I'd look at it today, and it would be something like twenty dollars. You know, it's still over a hundred. I mean, GameStop is is held up fair. I mean, obviously, it's not at the four hundred level anymore, but it's held up fairly well, um, given all all these effects. Yeah, and that's that's kind of an incredible thing to me as well. I mean, I think that look psychologically, it takes a while for air to come out of a bubble um, because there's this effect called anchoring where people look at where the price was and they say, this stock got as high as X. Uh, I'm buying it at a fourth of X. That seems pretty cheap to me. Not looking back, not scrolling back another year and saying, actually, this is this is trading at 50 times where it was. Uh, so that's, that's one thing. Another thing is that a couple of these companies, GameStop and AMC, have gone out and raised money. So they have taken advantage because their shareholder base is just it's two kinds of shareholders today. They have index funds that have to own it no matter what. They're just in there passively. Uh, and they have a bunch of retail uh, people who are very enthusiastic about the company who view it as kind of a more a movement uh, than an investment. And those people will buy it 
not, not as much stock as you'll sell them, but they'll buy a lot of stock. And they purchased a lot of stock. So when you have a, especially AMC, but GameStop as well, uh, a financially challenged company, and then you're able to sell shares at a very high price, not really an economically justifiable price, I might add, uh, then your balance sheet looks a lot better. So even though uh, it probably wasn't very smart to buy that those shares, whoever bought them, these are newly issued shares, it, it changes the narrative because then this company has a lot of money and it could use that money properly managed, certainly at least to stay in business and repay its loans, but also to buy something and, and do something. And it has an enthusiastic group of shareholders, people who buy NFTs and stuff like that, that are you know really lucrative these days and might be for a little while more. Uh, and, and so, you know, it, it, it can get into other verticals and, you know, when you're selling a JPEG that costs you nothing and you're selling it for a lot of money, you know, that's this pure profit, right? So, so it, it is entirely possible given the proclivities of, of their investors that they could get into, into businesses that are actually much more profitable than selling movie tickets or selling old video games. One of the most interesting parts of this story to me is Keith Gill and some others and their ability to hold. You know, I don't know if you're like me, but if, if I double my money in a stock, I'm looking ahead for the exits, you know, to make sure I don't, I'm too worried about losing those profits. I mean, what was it that allowed them to continue to hold? And can you also talk about, like, at the peak, how much money Keith Gill actually made on this? Sure. Well, I think Keith Gill is a, a very impressive guy, a really impressive character. I think in a, a different life, uh, he could be, um, and I'm only slightly exaggerating, like a, a Warren Buffett type character, because it's a really rare mindset to come up with an investment thesis and then stick to it. And then when you, you know, he started out the bet worth about $53,000 at the peak. Um, well, intraday, I think it was worth well north of $50 million. So a thousand times what he had invested. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, Justin, the reason that that I'm well, one of many reasons that I'm not a, a multimillionaire or a billionaire, is that I, I just couldn't do that. I mean, first of all, if if I earned ten million or a hundred million dollars doing something, I'd be like, fine, good, I'm I'm out. I'm going to do something, you know, something else. Uh, and and some people are much more driven and they view it as kind of points in life. Uh, and but at the same time, like just when it comes to investing, I'm like you. I I would have a very difficult time having you know, a hundred times my money and, and not, uh, not selling. And so he has that, that rare discipline. Now the other people on wall street bets, I don't think had that rare discipline. I think that they, they had a, an ideology called diamond hands, which was, we need to hold on. Everybody needs to hang on to this so that we, uh, we ruin the lives of these hedge fund managers. And so for them individually, it was a lot of small amounts of money. And they're like, yeah, sure. And that's how I got into it. That's that's what got me interested in it. Is my uh, my son came to me and told me about his friend, and I spoke to his friend, who said, "Yeah, I'm not going to sell this stock." I was like, "Well, you know, I, I'm not going to hand out financial advice to my son's friends, although I do sometimes, like unsolicited." But I'm like, you know, you doubled your money, and this thing is not worth what it's worth now. Uh, and I think it was maybe sixty dollars at the time or something like that. You know, of course, I gave him the wrong advice because I mean, he should have held on until he, you know he made four or five or six times as much. I mean, I was, um, I was way too early, but he, he, his response was, I'm not going to sell because that's what, you know, that's what all these people on this, this board are, are doing. That's what made this possible. That's what, that's what I saw that, that made me think this is just going to be such a crazy story that I, I have to write something about it. And, and thank goodness the, you know, my email wasn't sort of deleted immediately uh, at Penguin Random House, but they said, oh, that's interesting. Do you have a book proposal about it? Which I, I didn't, obviously. I just noticed it 15 minutes earlier. A lot of people attribute the end of this to Robin Hood's decision finally to have to halt the stock. And I just wanted to ask you, I know there's a million con conspiracy theories about about this out there in terms of Ken Griffin, you know, investing um, in, in Melvin Capital and, you know, if he helped bail them out and if that played a role in all this. Did you find any validity to any of that? Do you, do you think Robinhood basically just had a capital call and had to halt the stock? Or do you think there was anything behind some of these conspiracy theories? There's no validity at all to the conspiracy theories whatsoever. Uh, but uh, but in terms of, of things looking bad, I mean, it's like, you know, kind of being found with a bloody knife and a dead body. And they're like, no, 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 I can explain. And I just picked it up and whatever, right? I mean, like, there's like, it, it it certainly seems awfully convenient. So that that 
I, I don't know how much further it would have gone. It could have gone on for days or maybe weeks. Maybe uh, GameStop would be worth $4,000 a share, not for $400 a share, right? It already was the most traded stock in, in the world for a few days there. And it was the most valuable company in different indices that it was part of. And, you know, it was it was causing all kinds of distortions already at the level that it reached. Um, but Robinhood uh, informed, and Robinhood was the main broker for many of these people, informed its, its customers that they could no longer buy uh, shares of GameStop and a, a, a dozen other stocks uh, or options. And that killed it. That took the air out of the bubble. It, it, it peaked that day, but possibly on a round of short covering where the shorts were were buying back the stock to close out their positions. But that was that was kind of the end of the main phase. And they were raked over the coals. And think about I'll, I'll tell you what happened that there's I think it's I mean, I'm biased, obviously, but I think it's a very exciting book. I think even if you though, you you know, the story, uh, it, it's I think it's exciting because there's tension throughout and there's there's probably one certifiably boring chapter of the book where I explain why this happened and how it works and payment for order flow and the plumbing of the financial system. And it's very important to explain because uh, it's it's only fair to explain. So Robin Hood was in an impossible position where they got a call in the middle of the night and brokers have a broker too. So when you buy a stock and money goes out of your account and the stock goes into your account, the stock's not in your really in your account yet and the money is out of your account, but it's not to the to the person who sold it to you yet. It takes a couple of days. And that you don't have to think about that. But brokers have to think about that because brokers have a broker and they got a call in the middle of the night from their broker, which is a clearinghouse, that said, all your clients are buying this handful of stocks. They're all long. A lot of them are doing it with margin. A lot of them have been extended money by you. They just opened accounts this week and the money hasn't even hit their accounts yet and you allowed them to buy. And that creates a dangerous situation whenever this reverses and uh, you need to put up more security so we're sure that you're good for the money. And uh, can we have $3 billion, please? Now, $3 billion, like we're used to really big numbers these days. That's just a tremendous amount of money um, for a company like Robinhood to put up in the middle of the night, no less. And so they couldn't. There was no way. Uh, they went out later that day and they raised a billion dollars. Before they could do that, they went to the clearinghouse and they said, we'll be out of business. Uh, we can't do that. How about we don't allow our customers to buy any more of those shares? How much can you cut that that cash requirement? And they said it was seven hundred and something million dollars. I don't remember the exact amount off the top of my head. And that they could just barely do. And then they had to explain to their customers why they did that. And and so you're always at a, a tricky juncture as a financial firm by saying, oh yeah, we're almost out of business. You know, you don't say that. There's a can be a run on the bank and a run on the brokerage, and your counterparties won't won't deal with you. And so they they didn't initially do a very good job of explaining why. They didn't lie, but they didn't they didn't really go into all the gory details either at first. And it I don't think maybe it wouldn't have mattered if they had, um, because th- this was it just seemed too suspicious because their main counterparty the, that paid them the the lion's share of uh, their revenue was Citadel Securities. A big hedge fund, uh, one of the biggest hedge funds in the world is Citadel run by the same man, Ken Griffin. Two separate companies, though. Citadel, uh, a couple of days earlier, had injected a couple of billion dollars into Melvin Capital, the main victim of the short sellers. And it took a revenue stake in the company, which meant that it it stood to make money if uh, Melvin Capital rebounded, as they expected it would. Although Melvin Capital... Uh, was out of these trades. Melvin, Melvin Capital, by the end of, the, of that day, was uh, of the 26th, was was out of this trade and was licking its wounds. But it looks really suspicious, right? It looks like the hedge funds, like it was like heads heads we win, tails you lose, right? And um, and that's how everybody in Washington portrayed it. That's the day the congressional hearings were called. You had AOC, you had Donald Trump Jr., you had Ted Cruz, you had Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, and 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 so on and so forth, and they they smelled a rat and and the the explanation was just a lot more boring but to this day there're all kinds of you know some warehouse burned down a few days ago outside chicago that held held some records and and that's now that's part of this conspiracy it's obviously it's a cover up so yeah so uh whenever i write an article and i don't mention it 
I don't mention the conspiracy. I get hate mail um, on social media and at the Wall Street Journal that I'm, I'm a shill and I'm part of the plot. And um, just for the record, guys, I do not own stocks uh, individually. Uh, my entire income is from writing stuff like this book or the Wall Street Journal. I don't get paid if stocks go up or down. Um, so I'm not part of a conspiracy, but I don't think any, any, I can explain that a, a lot and it, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, if, if you look at the, some of the reviews of my book, some of the one-star reviews, by the way, if anybody here, and I'll just put in a pitch for myself. If any of you have read the book and you like it and you feel like giving a three or four or dare I say five-star review, don't be shy. You'll see a few one-star reviews out there from people who did not read the book, who, you know, think that I'm part of a conspiracy. So maybe you can offset that you know, if you, if you have a few minutes, but, um, yeah, so it, it is not a conspiracy. That's, that's a long answer to your question. There, there was not a crime committed. Uh, I'm very confident of that. Yeah. You could, you could tell a popular narrative was though, by the fact that AOC and Ted Cruz were agreeing with each other, which basically would, would never happen on it. I don't know if I've ever seen another issue where that's ever happened. Yeah. This is 22 days after the Capitol riots that they're agreeing with each other on this and, and Donald Trump Jr. And Josh Hawley and, you know, and the list goes on. Yeah. So, uh, and, and that's what spurred the, the, the hearings to be called. And then the hearings were like, they're, they're fun, but not they, you know, by then, I mean, they knew not to, to push that narrative. I think the, the staffers, of, you know, Maxine Waters and whatever kind of informed them, like it wasn't really, you know, the, they almost ran out of money, whatever, but they still were raked over the coals. They had to make a good show out of it. Uh, and, um, and it's a shame really that the hearings weren't more substantive because, because, I think retail investors really get the short end of the stick and they get goaded into these things. And so there is very little discussion of that. And that that's the real consumer protection issue here is that uh, you had maybe 10 million young people get into the stock market and get into all kinds of crazy speculation uh, lured by brokers that that profit the more you trade and people really over trading, which is a clear path to to poor results for yourself financially and the where were the regulators you know i mean they even even the self-regulatory organization they slapped robin hood on the wrist for a couple of transgressions and and made them pay some fines but they they really kind of stood idly by while this was happening and while a lot of other bad things were happening too uh that that were unhealthy for the you know for for the finances of this this new generation of investors. You mentioned this idea that this was sort of retail investors sticking it to Wall Street. Um, and you know that your title the title of your book sort of gets at that idea. And I want to read you a quote you had in the book from Alexis Ohanian and get you to respond to it. Um, you, the quote you had was, it was a chance for Joe and Jane America, the retail buyers of stock, to flex back and push back on these hedge funds. I mean, do you think in the end that's what happened here? Did, did retail investors really stick it to Wall Street in this episode? No, they didn't. I'm, I'm sure that Alexis Ohanian is, is well-intentioned. Uh, he, he chose, he was given multiple opportunities to to explain that quote and, and speak to me. He is the co-founder of Reddit, although he's no longer uh, with the company. He was chairman uh, until uh, a couple of years ago, um, but but he's not, in, or on the board rather, sorry, until a couple of years ago, but he's no longer with the company. No, not at all. I think that's a naive and romantic view. Uh, he, he might believe it, but it's not true. He even said, I think Wall Street bets can go out and and form its own hedge fund. They can kind of crowdsource some money and they can outperform these hedge funds, which is just laughable. Uh, you know, it's it's hedge funds have a hard enough time, much less. I mean, you know, sort of basing what they do. I mean, there there have been some exchange traded funds though that have tried to harness the social media buzz. So basically, take what's buzzed about on social media uh, and then turn it into an investment strategy, and they've done horribly. So if that's any indication, then then a hedge fund. Using borrowed money by these guys would just be, you know, would would not be a thing that I would recommend investing in. But um, no, th th there are a couple of hedge funds that had really, really awful months. Um, Melvin Capital lost its investors almost seven billion dollars, which was a tremendous, tremendous loss. And there were a few other hedge funds that had very bad months. Andrew Left, who I did speak with for the book, who called out, he's a uh, an activist short seller. Uh, called out the revolutionaries and just got steamrolled by them. So yeah, he had a bad month. Um, and he was personally terrorized by them, by the way, which is a separate matter. But uh, no, it. most of Wall Street had a fantastic quarter when this was going on. They had a fantastic 2020. They had a great first quarter of 2021. 
They like it when new people show up on Wall Street with their money. Technology allowed these small accounts to exist in the first place. You never could have opened an, a, a brokerage account with 200 bucks, you know, in, in 1995 because commissions would eat up your account very quickly. But you could do it with $200 or even $100 or even 50 bucks today, and you could be a very lucrative customer for your, your broker if your broker is somebody like, like Robinhood or its many imitators because they don't charge commission, but they, they make money the more you trade. And they had customers... They had customers who traded uh, 11,000 times in a period of six months. Think about that. What, just, let's just go back to the really low commissions that existed before commissions went to zero. You know, you'd, you'd be spending over 100 grand a year on commissions before you made a cent. I mean, it just would have been that level of hyperactivity would have been impossible. Um, and maybe some people would have tried it, but they would have lost all their money so quickly that they, they would leave. But they wouldn't, you know, remain customers. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that this serves these these new young investors very poorly. And I think that Wall Street, you can look at anything in the public domain and a lot of things that are that just leaked out, and people were very happy. And a lot of people, a lot of rich people, were in the right place at the right time. Also, they didn't. You know, they, they were owning AMC debt or owning AMC stock or owning GameStop stock or uh, whatever and, and were not too happy with how things were going. And then all of a sudden they were bailed out by something that they had nothing to do with. I mean, that's that's one of the things that, you know, we've talked about. And it's a, it's a question in terms of, you you know, you have all these new beginning investors coming online. They're investing a lot of them with Robinhood. Um, you know, there's one camp out there that would say that these young investors are getting exposure to the market at an early age. That's a good thing. But then on the other hand, you know, like you've pointed out, it, a lot of these a lot of these investors were over trading. Um, they were totally taking a speculative sort of, you know, tr trading type of mindset. So, I mean, where do you land on whether it's, I guess, good or bad for the young investor. Do you have an opinion? Yeah, no, I have an opinion. Um, and my opinion is that different people are different. So I, I can't make a blanket statement about all of them. I, I, can, I basically see them falling into three camps. I see the, I mean, first of all, it's good that they got, that they opened accounts. Uh, they might not have otherwise, were it not for this level of excitement. So engaging with uh, Wall Street and with finance and with the stock market is not a bad thing, you know, on its face, right? You, you need to invest in something that compounds over the years in order to have a nest egg, right? It's, it's, you, can, you could do it by starting your own business or by buying homes or doing whatever, but you need to multiply your money. You're not going to grow a nest egg through addition. You need, it through, you need multiplication. You need that magic of compound interest. So that's good. Some subset of them, I think, will say, boy, was I dumb. I learned my mistake. Maybe they'll even make more mistakes, but then they'll say, you know what? Slow and steady wins the race. Uh, I think the stock market thing is a good thing. I'm going to invest in more sober things. I'm going to just buy and hold some stocks or better yet, some uh, index uh, ETFs or mutual funds. And or or I'm going to hire uh, a fiduciary to manage my money. And that's, you know, that's the path I'm going to take. And that will stand them in good stead. And the, the you know, the present, you know, the present value of the money lost will pale in comparison to all the money that they make over decades of saving and investing. I'm afraid that that's going to be a, a small percentage. I hope I'm wrong. I think some percentage of these people will say Wall Street is crooked. This is a conspiracy. They changed the rules. Uh, they uh, they turned off the buy button. I'm not going to have anything to do with Wall Street. It is a crooked, rotten place. And you think about the generation um, that began investing during the roaring 20s. You know, about 10% of Americans own stocks or unit trusts, which is a lot more than they had. It, before that, it really had not been something for the general public to be to be in because it was just seen as a plaything of of crooked rich guys. And and that generation, you know, bought stocks on margin and they were wiped out and they never got back into stocks. So it was if you look at at stock market turnover, it did not recover to roaring 20s levels until the 1950s. And by then you had a different generation. So it was different people, basically. 
getting to the stock market who weren't scarred by that experience. And so that's what I'm afraid of is that in term, whatever money you might have lost uh, in this, it, it pales uh, to the, the amount of money if you're 22 years old or 28 years old that you will lose by not investing. Um, so so that's that's really a shame. And then there's some other subset, I think, and I hope this is a very small subset that basically is sort of bitten by the bug. And they're like the guy hanging out at the, the, the horse track and just taking their paycheck there. And they'll keep trying to find some hack. Uh, and they'll be they'll be kind of Wall Street's ideal customer where they'll they'll basically, um, you know, they'll win some and they'll lose some. But in the long run, they're not going to win very much money and they'll wind up not through commissions anymore, but indirectly they'll wind up enriching Wall Street and they'll be the sort of the, the degenerate gambler of of Wall Street. And and I, I think most people are going to be that middle category that I described, just just be embittered by the whole experience and and not engage with Wall Street or not engage with Wall Street for a long time and maybe tiptoe back one day. What has been the impact of uh, short selling because of all this? I mean, I think the, you know, what I've heard is that, you know, short sellers are, they can be good for the market in terms of keeping things in check. They sort of balance out um, things because a lot of short sellers, you know, do deep dive homework and research and they try to figure out, you know, the stocks that aren't looking good fundamentally and that can go down. So where does that stand today? And, uh, you know, is that is that is it a good or bad thing, depending on what the answer is here? Well, short sellers are not angels or altruists, but they serve a vital function in the market. And there are times when they are uh, pushed out of the market or or curtailed are generally bad times for stocks. Um, And, you know, of course, people will point out that short sellers exposed Enron and Valiant and, you know, and all these other scandals and you wouldn't have known about them uh, or you would have known about them much, much later and much more money would have been sucked into the to those companies with, in the absence of short sellers. But it's not just frauds that they point out. They take the opposite view. You know, it, without a short seller, there are two views you can take on a stock. I like it and I want to buy it or I don't like it. I'm not going to buy it. You opt out. You abstain. Uh, it's like, you know, the only vote you can have for a candidate is, is I vote for him or I abstain. You also have to be able to vote against something. And um, if you don't, then the price will be less correct and you'll have mispricing in the market. And that's particularly important to retail investors. And that that's why it's so ironic that there's th- this uprising really that was a retail uprising attacked short sellers specifically because short sellers play that vital role of calling BS on things, of saying that, no, this is really overvalued. I'm going to take the opposite view. I think it's a, and short sellers are taking a big risk. They really have to pick their spots carefully, of course, because they they face in the, in theory unlimited losses uh, if they're wrong, since the stock can go up to infinity, and that that represents their downside. Uh, so when they're when they're cowed, uh, then there are more mispricings in in the market. And the fact that they had such a bad 2020 uh, left in 2021 a lot more mispricings in the market. I mean, I, I don't have to, to tell you that there are just a lot of ridiculous investments out there today, a lot of ridiculous things in the stock market and beyond in in the world of, of crypto and, and what have you. And and the inability to bet against it or the danger of stepping in front of that, that, freight, that freight train, that speeding freight train and, and betting against it has uh, allowed those things to go on, go a lot higher than they might normally have in a more balanced market. Just two more questions here before we wrap up. Um, you've been doing you know, interviews for the promotion of the book. Is there, is there an area of the story that you think is very interesting that you haven't been asked about? So um, that's a good question. I, I, I have been asked about the the psychology uh, of the meme stock squeeze, but maybe not like a, a deep dive into um, what what these these apps do that young people are using to get us into trading. I mean, there are all kinds of effects. I, I'm I'm a student of investor psychology. I've I've really been interested in it for a long time. I, I started my career in emerging markets where I saw a lot of booms and busts. And then I've been a financial journalist for almost 20 years. And I love reading stories about that. I love reading books about that. But those were more about mob psychology and mass psychology. And I learned a lot 
uh, about how products are are designed and how apps are are designed in terms of the colors used in terms of the layout in terms of what you see first when you you open them up for example when you open up Robinhood you see oh this is what this is what's going up and what's going down and what people are trading isn't that useful well it's there for a reason it's there because you see what people have been doing and young people especially want to know what everybody else is doing just like you go on to uh, Twitter or Instagram or Facebook and you see what's trending right that's there for a reason too because things that are trending then that that's how things go viral and uh, there there have been studies done about Robinhood specifically showing that there are many crowding events and I got into that a little bit in the book I mean, the book is written for, I think it's it's of interest to people in finance, but it's also of interest to people who are, who are just generally interested in the world and interested in this phenomenon and, and how, how to invest their money. So it, it, it's written, um, you know, I thought about my mom and my sister and whatever. And so I didn't want to do a particularly deep dive into any one of these aspects. I do go into it in the book, but I think that um, this has really sparked an, an interest uh, in in consumer psychology and um, in social psychology, I, I I feel like I want to I have read a lot more about it. I want to read much more about it because I'm fascinated by uh, by influence by how companies um, push our buttons psychologically. And I think that companies have learned a lot. So we haven't changed psychologically, and the psychology of markets has not changed. And that's why we'll have the same patterns again and again. But what has changed is how good these companies are at getting into our heads and getting us to do things and buy things. In the last chapter of the book, you actually listed some things that I think that you think in some of these young investors are actually maybe getting right or how they're thinking differently about investing in the markets. And I just thought maybe to end, we could kind of hit these real quick. Usually our standard closing question is, you know, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or advice to your average investor, what would that be? But I'd like to substitute that with you quickly talking through each one of these seven um, sort of points that you brought up in that last chapter. So the first point is um, experts are overrated. Experts are overrated. If you look at uh, at stock market predictions, um, you know, made, made publicly uh, or analyst. And I, by the way, I was an analyst. Um, for many years, and I worked in a large, successful research department. They, they are—they're uh, basically uh, just a shot in the dark. Uh, I, I think that expert opinion is overrated, and so the skepticism of guys in suits is is um, probably correct. I think their cynicism is well founded. Number two is be a hodler. Yeah, be a hodler. Hodler, H-O-D-L, which is a typo uh, on a crypto forum some years ago, has become sort of code for hold, buy and hold. And I think, yeah, I think long holding periods are very much to your advantage. I think uh, not just long holding periods, though, uh, long periods of inattention. So basically, if you buy some funds and buy some like a a diversified group of of stocks and hold them for a long time, you will outperform most investors just the fact that you have held them for not just because of the tax advantages of holding things for a long time, but just because, you know, there, there are scary times and you need to um, not be shaken out of your positions. You need to, like on days when the Dow is down a thousand points, you need to just turn off the TV and not not check your, your investments. Those are the worst times to to touch your money. And also when all your friends are talking about the hot new thing, hey, 3D printing or whatever the, the latest flavor of the month is, you need to, you know, I, maybe I should buy that instead of, you know, the ETF that I own. No, just just stick with what you have. You'll almost always be much better off in the long run by uh, the kind of slow and steady strategy. The next one isn't from a uh, Game of Thrones episode, but it's uh, welcome our robo overlords. Right. So uh, you can uh, you can do that and you can um, you can reweight your account and stuff like that. But these days, technology has allowed, first of all, it's allowed investing to be very cheap. But it's allowed uh, algorithms to to do it for you very cheaply for like, you know, 0.25% or even less. Uh, many companies like Wealthfront and Betterment and Vanguard and Fidelity and Schwab, Intelligent Portfolios, and the list goes on, will do it for you where it's not a human holding your hand, but it's, you know, but they will rebalance your portfolio and and basically sort of buy low and, and sell high by default by by rebalancing 
a portfolio to your risk tolerance. The number four point was a little bit of friction is good. Yeah. So one thing that um, th- these these apps are are known for is is being frictionless. It's too easy. It's too too easy to be impulsive. Uh, and even uh, a, at a robo advisor, I mean, they'll they'll put up messages and say, oh, you'll have to pay this much in tax and whatever. If you do this, are you sure? Are you sure? You know, they'll they'll put a couple of roadblocks. Uh, there to make you think if the Dow's down a thousand and you, you want to sell all your stocks, but uh, maybe having a, a human on the other end of the phone talk you off a ledge depends on your 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 psychological makeup might be better for you. And the last three are do it yourself, know the odds, and losing money early hurts too. Yeah, so do it yourself in the sense that you you can have a robo advisor. You can do it yourself if you really want to purchase individual stocks and you purchase. Uh, there are actually are some tax and other advantages to purchasing a portfolio of stocks yourself, as long as you don't trade it and churn it frequently. Um, for example, the example that I give in the book is maybe you own uh, ExxonMobil and Kellogg, and then both went down. Well, you could sell those for a tax loss, and then you can buy uh, basically identical stocks like Chevron and General Mills that are in the same two businesses, and then take a tax loss and and you'll actually be more efficient, uh, more tax efficient than a, an exchange traded fund. Uh, know the odds. You should know the odds of buying that shiny new stock, buying to that IPO. Most stocks don't do well. The, a minority of stocks uh, do well. Most stocks actually historically have gone to zero uh, or done very, very poorly. So it is a, a handful of stocks and a handful of days in the stock market that make most of your returns. And you need to understand that. And so your your position needs to be long term, but also not too concentrated. And you you are very uh, poorly served by chasing the shiny new thing. Of course, I'm going to say that and then somebody's going to say I could have bought whatever at its IPO. But generally speaking, shiny new new offerings are uh, are very poor and then well the, the last thing i said refresh my memory because the book's not in front of me oh <laughs> losing money early hurts too yeah it does uh, and we, we we discussed that a bit before is that basically the sort of you know they just think about compound interest i mean you know losing uh losing a thousand dollars today is like losing ten thousand dollars when you're retired if you're a young person so uh losing money just just because of the way compound interest hurts too but all, it also hurts because it, it, it can induce that that bitterness. So the people who say, yeah, these people, they just need to have fun and whatever. I, I think that, sure, I mean, young people want to have fun, but they're having fun with their savings, with all the money they have saved in many cases. So I, I, I don't take too lightly the fact that young people rushed into the market and, um, and many of them um, squandered their money on, uh, you know, on, on these meme stocks. You know, I think it, it does matter, unfortunately. Seven very good and important points. Uh, Spencer, I just want to say this has been great. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for helping us and our listeners understand um, what happened with this story and that crazy wild time in the market. And we wish you all the best with the book. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbonell. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube, or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.